0: I guess from a shanghan point of view, you know, if you have a young disease with a yin pulse, that's bad. But if you have a yin disease with a young pulse, then that's actually good. And that's when the disease and the pulses don't match. But in one context, it can be uh, viewed as bad. And in another context, it can actually be viewed as good.
1: I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Sales and marketing. These are two words that used to cause a lot of anxiety for me partly because I've spent much of my life self-employed. And so these are activities that were baked into creating a sustainable livelihood. And partly because I was working across purposes with myself because I had a belief system. And that belief system had a bad opinion about money and it had a bad opinion about marketing. I had concerns about presenting myself and my work in a light that was not true. I wanted to feel a sense of integrity. And I suspect as I look back There were far too many times when I was failing at my own standard. It's been a long road for me to realize that marketing is really nothing more than clear, authentic communication with a group of people that you desire to serve and have a positive impact on. We all have stories about bad marketing where somebody was trying to manipulate you into something without regard as to whether or not it was something that you wanted. The seller was concerned for themselves but not at all for you. No one likes that and you shouldn't. It's easy to think that bad marketing is what marketing is because it's very hard to recognize when really good marketing is happening to you because good marketing, it's seamless with what you are already thinking and wanting. Bad marketing feels like an intrusion. Good marketing is more like a conversation where you feel a sense of compatico. Bad marketing has you leaning back and looking for an exit, while good marketing draws you in, like a good conversation with a friend. Often when we think about marketing, we bring to mind the bad kind, and I'll bet you can easily reel off a handful of terrible experiences that you've had with it. But can you tell me about a time when you were on the receiving end of good marketing? Just like good health feels like nothing, but bad health, there's a lot that you can say about that. I know that many of us struggle with marketing our services because we don't want to be that smarmy salesperson and others of us are uncomfortable because anytime we make an offer to somebody, we also risk the possibility of rejection. Perhaps you're uncomfortable with tooting your own horn or you might even have opinions about those who are too self-promoting. You don't want to be seen that way. Here's one way that I think you can know that you're on the side of integrity or not. Ask yourself this question. Would your patients still want to come see you if they knew your marketing strategy? If the answer is yes, you're probably on solid ground. All right, friends, let's get into today's conversation on an acupuncturist's favorite topic channels and points, and this one from the perspective of the early Qing Dynasty. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AcuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. <music>
0: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters for insightful discussions on all things TCM learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every
2: season, trust meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up in available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code GEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Michael Brown, welcome to GEOLOGICAL.
0: Hi, Michael. Good to hear you. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. We are at completely opposite ends of the... Uh, world here. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, and you are in...
0: Brisbane, Australia, and I think uh, different times of the day, right? You must be getting close to bed?
1: Uh, Not quite bed, but I'm going to have dinner here pretty soon.
0: Okay, okay, okay. So it's it's five-ish or something like that for you? It's
1: five-ish over here.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, Well, I've just gotten up and had breakfast, so...
1: But it's yesterday.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is, it is. (laughs) We're
1: time traveling. The
0: news isn't great today either, so...
1: Well, we're going to stay away from that.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I am delighted to have you here. You are kind of a Chinese language geek, from what I can gather.
0: I don't know if I would say that. I just like to read. Well, I like to read a lot of Chinese books. You know, definitely, I still have a lot to improve with my Chinese language.
1: Well, we all we always do. What got you interested in Chinese language in the first place?
0: Well, I mean, th- this is an interesting story. Do you teach at any of the institutions, or because I, I think you do a little bit with with the Seattle school? Do you, Michael?
1: Oh, what I did at the Seattle school was learn Chinese medicine. No, I I don't even live in Seattle anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Oh, well, yeah, you, you said Missouri, right? Right. Um, Well, there was um, a guy who from Australia who did some teaching in America. I think at the San Diego school, a guy called Greg Bantick.
1: Oh, Greg Bantick! Yeah, he he was at San Diego, and then he did uh, wander up up to Seattle Seattle for. Yeah, 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 he was there for. I thought. Yeah.
0: Anyway, as I was finishing my studies in acupuncture in Brisbane, anyway, I was thinking of doing some studies in kind of biomedical science and and. He said that I said, how do I know what is true in Chinese medicine? And he said, well, go and study the language, and then you can find out for yourself.
1: Oh, man. What great advice. How do you know what's true in Chinese medicine? What a great question.
0: I mean, even then, you know, still, still opinion-based. In Chinese medicine now, there are a lot of things that I am very skeptical of that people put under the banner of Chinese medicine – and they'll come up with kind of these great ideas that say, oh, you know, this is Chinese medicine, this is this, this is that, and they'll talk about it. But then, you know, they make no references to the Neijing, to the Shanghan Lun, to any kind of classical text. They start out with this premise or this idea, and it sounds great, but then they don't reference anything. This is a big problem in, in Chinese medicine, I think, and this is why I take kind of my approach, which I call basically a source-based Chinese medicine. And this is where we should be referencing out what our ideas and where our ideas come from, and then we can extrapolate on that as well. But I think because people have been removed from the source text, that they don't understand this process of extrapolation that has happened in Chinese medicine for nearly like the last thousand years. Because when I look at early authors, such as like uh, Lu Su of The Cooling School, and Wu Ji who wrote the first kind of commentary on the Shanghan Lun both of these guys are continuously referencing the Neijing as well and all the Shanghan Lun as well more so in Wu Ji's he uses the Neijing to explain the Shanghan Lun so it's like you know these guys 900 years ago could reference and and kind of extrapolate the medicine but here now we are lacking that in the west
1: well we don't have the cultural background for one and you know, it also seems to me, and, and this is always a bugaboo that I've had. I feel like I struggle with it. I've studied a little Chinese language myself. In some ways, for the same reason I think you've gone into it, I want to see if I can learn something from within the language that might be missing in English. That was, that was sort of what took me in there. But the thing that I've noticed is that sometimes people will reference something, but it seems it's more like cherry-picking, than really looking at it within some kind of a context.
0: I think that that exists kind of like in the Chinese language scholars as well, is that they'll kind of maybe just pick this one idea and it's like, well, that that's what I'm going to base my whole argument on. But then you also don't look at it in kind of the wider context as well. So I, I think that that idea exists in English, but I think sometimes Chinese authors have done something like that as well. They
1: do it as well. I mean, maybe this is a human trait, right?
0: I got to say, don't be too humble saying that you did a little bit of Chinese language and and translating the uh, Huang Huang's Tenki formula book.
1: (laughs) Well, that book was easy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's still difficult to translate any work like that, I think. Um, So,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, the nice thing about Huang is he writes in a very conversational sort of way. It's not particularly scholarly. Scholarly stuff, yeah, I think that's difficult. But- Conversational. That's well. I I don't know. I mean, for me, I I thought it was. I thought I, I picked an easy book to translate.
0: I just think the you know the process of sitting down, translating, and then you know the question of like foreignizing it or, keep, or domesticating it. You know, keeping it. You know, what parts do you keep? Kind of uh, how it should be in the original versus will people understand it in our native language as well? If I recall, you know, the story. Were you in like Youngshore or something like that? And you were saying, uh, I want to translate this or something like that. And someone said, yes, well, why don't yes. you just do it? That's right. I remember reading that and, and thinking that was cool. You know, you just got to start somewhere with translating as well. And every time, you know, you do a little bit of translating and you kind of go back and and then maybe you read kind of earlier things and you think, oh, this isn't so good. I should change this up, you know?
1: Uh, well, you know, I think that's true. Any body of work we do, whether it's translating, writing, writing, painting, practicing medicine, podcasting. I mean, you go back and you look what you did five years ago and it's like, oh my God, I can't I can't believe I did that, right? I actually put that out in public. But you have to start where you are.
0: I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think that in terms of physicians, we should be looking at ourselves a year from now and thinking, do I know more than what I did a year ago? Am I practicing better than what I did a year ago? And if not, then maybe you need to kind of think, hey, am I working as hard as I should? Because we should be on a steady incline of improvement, at least in our knowledge and, and you know, what we're doing in clinic, I think, as well.
1: I would agree. Absolutely.
0: And then kind of all aspects of life. I think, uh, you know, whether like you're a musician or something like that, you know, you want to continually improve as well. It's very hard for us to kind of reach the pinnacle of, of Chinese medicine being that we're kind of foreigners, that we have to, you know, to read things in Chinese as well. So it's, it's definitely harder for us and we have to work harder, you know. But, that, I mean, that's okay. We just That's what we've got to do, right?
1: Well, I mean, in some ways we have to work harder. In some ways we have it easier. Can I say that? I'm going to say that. This, this may be controversial. In some ways we have it easier. If you're trying to learn Chinese medicine in China, it's hard to learn Chinese medicine. There's so much zhongshi There's so much Chinese medicine, Western medicine, sort of squished together. Just trying to learn Chinese medicine by itself can be a bit challenging over there. I don't know the the situation in Australia. I know increasingly here in the United States as well. They're they're trying to squish more Western medicine into it.
0: That's very much what they uh, learn here in Australia as well. They they learn a lot of like the pathophysiology of the Western diseases as well alongside when they're learning Chinese medicine as well. That's kind of like a difficult thing because on one side you're learning I guess you know like the status quo, what you've been in your paradigm your whole life and on this other side is trying to like break down all your preconceived ideas, but then they're getting reinforced in these other subjects, you know? So your mind has kind of been torn in two. It's trying to break you down, and then, yeah, you're getting built up in this other one. So it's a, I think it's a difficult scenario.
1: It, it is a difficult scenario. And I think another piece you were just mentioning, we learn a lot of pathophysiology. I, we learn it from the Western medicine side which can be useful. It's good to know how to recognize very dangerous situations. We also learn from the Chinese medicine side. We learn to look at what's broken, what's diseased, what's not working right. It seems to me, though, that learning how to actually look at and understand proper physiology, to understand how things are supposed to work and to be able to recognize health is kind of missing in education on both sides.
0: I think like our current textbooks, that they were a good introduction, like Giovanni and things like that. I think they've they've done great things, but I think if I was going to look at designing a Chinese medical course, that the best textbooks on physiology and pathophysiology are actually uh, by the Paradigm Press, the five pathomechanism books. Have you seen those ones?
1: I have not. They're translated
0: by Sabine Wilms. These books are just, they are incredible. They quote a lot of the old kind of, you know, well, not classics, but the books from kind of like the last 900 years, like the Ming and Qing dynasty works. And they kind of, they just explain what's going on in the, in the body very, very well. And they give you Chinese references and they break it down very succinctly. The only thing is that they kind of have, I guess, a high entry level in that they're only herb based and they only give you the herbal formula that they won't say, this herbal formula is doing this or doing that is actually working that you already had that implicit knowledge.
1: Right. You have to understand the dynamic that is being referred to.
0: But if you can understand the herbs and then even then, I think it's just like, okay, if you, if you aren't a herbalist, if you can understand the pattern, then try and extrapolate your own, maybe combination or something like that, that would be really beneficial. They're just very, very, very good textbooks. And I've just been rereading the spleen one myself as well. So I, I would I would think that that would be a really good place to start and to get students kind of used to it, maybe a little bit of higher level literature as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to step back for just a moment because I want to come back to your Chinese. So you have this conversation with Greg Bantick. He says, that, "You know, basically, if if you want to know what's true in the medicine, go look on the Chinese side, see what's in there." So, where did that take you?
0: When I finished up. Yeah, my studies. I went and enrolled at University of Queensland, which is my state, and started studying a Chinese program there. And look, I mean, I'll be honest, my spoken and listening Chinese are quite bad, especially for someone who studied as long as me. I'm a little bit strange in that way that I'm much more of a visual person. Even when it comes to music, I tend to write visually, like I, I will notate music that I write and think about how will this sound kind of when I look at something visually as well, what, where the notes go, I don't really hear it in my head. So when people speak Chinese to me, it just kind of goes over my head. But I mean, luckily for me, writing and translating is all kind of visual language. So I don't really need to talk to people that
1: much. It, you know, it's true. When I went to Chinese medicine school, they had us learning Chinese every single quarter. The idea was that we would, that we would not learn to speak it But we would learn to read enough that we could get access to source material. And you don't have to speak it to read it.
0: I mean, I think that that would be a fantastic thing. And I think that would be something great for more schools to encourage is to just have that kind of reading ability because I think that – Even just two semesters of learning how to basically read something, you might not grasp the more complex text, but maybe reading, you know, some diseases from a point or, you know, an entry into from a Bensal or a Materia Medica, they're not that difficult. And you might just be able to kind of pick it up and learn from there as well. But that's a really, really good introduction, I think. I just want to come back to this idea of, of what's true in Chinese medicine. And I think that because when I was in clinic is that I would hear someone say this, I would hear someone say that. And it's kind of like, well, you know, which one is correct? You know, even analyzing that question of which one is correct, you, we need to look at it deeper and say, in which context is which one correct as well?
1: Well, the context is so important, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever hear this kind of quotation float around your school where they say, if, um, the diseases and the pulse don't match, then that's really bad. Have you ever heard that quote kind of float around?
1: I cannot remember because I've been out of school for 20 years. So I don't remember.
0: That's kind of something that I, that I would hear float around. But it's kind of when you look at it, I guess, from a Shang point of view, you know, if you have a young disease with a yin pulse, that's bad. But if you have a yin disease with a young pulse, then that's actually good. And that's when the disease and the pulses don't match. But in one context, it can be uh, viewed as bad. And in another context, it can actually be viewed as good, right? Because they're looking at it as a sign of young recovery, right? So then in that terms of the quote, we need to kind of analyze when is this quote correct in which context, you know?
1: Sure. Well, I'm thinking about a patient that we had when I was in Chinese medicine school. And he was in his 70s. He enjoyed being frisky with his girlfriend, so he was eating a lot of ginseng. He came to us because he was having trouble being frisky with his girlfriend. And he had this thick yellow tongue coating, and he was eating tons of ginseng. And we said to him, this hot red Korean ginseng that you're eating, lay off of it. And he goes, well, but isn't ginseng supposed to be a good herb? Well, you know, for who and when.
0: People will say, oh, let's just use turnifying herbs in this context or something like that. But it's, you know, the herb is only good for the person at the right time, as used in your example, right? And and that's probably, I guess, one of the big things that – I don't know if you see it in America, but – some like pharmaceutical companies or things like that, they latch onto these kind of Chinese herbs and they bring it across and they're like, This is this is a cure for cold or something like that. And so it's just like, well what cold? You know, what kind of flu signs and symptoms is it? You can't just use that as a catch all. And in Australia, you know, we have some other people from different modalities prescribing like patent Chinese herbs as well. And it's just like you gotta look at it. Is is this the right herbal formula for this person at the right time and and then you know if you don't understand it fully should you be prescribing it and i would generally say no but because in australia the patent medicines are what we call over the counter so anyone can buy them so anyone can prescribe them as well but you can't make up your own kind of uh granules or herbal formulas or powders unless you're a registered herbalist in australia
2: hello everyone andrew Sturman here I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention, from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online. And if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much.
1: Very similar situation here. And, you know, it's kind of uh, like an appropriation thing, right? People go, oh, Chinese medicine. Oh, it does this. Oh, here, we can just use it in this way. But if you don't understand the nuance it's, well, at best, it's not helpful, right? And at worst, you're you're causing harm. But this, to me, is one of the real beauties of Chinese medicine at its root is that we're constantly paying attention to what is the context, what's going on? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it deficient? Is it excess? Who's got the issue? When do they have the issue?
0: I think even uh, looking at you know, the eight principles or kind of the six, I guess, variables has has uh, Zhang Jingyue. He was the first person to kind of talk about that. And later it became the eight principles. So looking at the six variables, it's like this interior, exterior, hot, cold. It's not one or the other. Your exterior can be cold and your interior can be hot. Or you can have, you know, both interior and exterior cold, both interior and exterior hot. And I think that sometimes in Chinese medicine school, they're teaching us to think it's only one or the other when we kind of need to look at the whole pattern as well and then kind of understanding that, you know, the diagnosis can be a little bit more complex than some of these uh, simple books as well. So well, I'll come back to uh, my Chinese language, right? So I, so I spent three years studying in an undergrad and one year was in China at uh, Shandong University. I came back and I was just working. My wife, she's from Thailand and and we kind of were going between back and forth there, so I wasn't really in a position to study. But she came out and then I and when we'd been living together, I thought I want to go back and study. So I contacted my university and spoke to them about doing an honors program. I decided that, you know, I would write a little bit of a thesis. And originally I was going to translate a book called the uh, Chunchu Fanlu, which is by it's called something like The Luxuriant Jews of Spring and Autumn by uh jong Shu. And not
1: familiar with him. No,
0: he he was a very famous uh Han Dynasty Confucian, actually kind of one of the most famous. They say that something like, you know, he didn't visit his garden for three years while he studied, or something like that. He was a very, very uh rigorous Confucian. But he is kind of uh like seen as the person who combined Confucianism with yin-yang and five-phase theory.
1: It's kind of a pivotal position to be in.
0: Well, absolutely. And I think then that this book and the other book, The Huai Nansa, which is what I wrote my thesis on, because I I was going to translate this book, but anyway, a guy called John Major and someone else, they ended up translating the book. And then the rules are you can't write your thesis if someone is translating that book. So I couldn't translate it. So I decided to write my thesis, which was uh, analyzing Yin and Yang in these two pre-Huang Neijing texts. And... You know, I think much to the, how would you say, normal thought is that these texts actually show quite different ideas of what, of how yin and yang were portrayed. And in the Huananza, which I guess you might say is kind of more of like like a Taoist text as well, being that the first chapter... Uh, extensively quotes uh, Laozi and the second chapter quotes Zhuangzi and then the next three chapters you have a little bit of stuff about like the seasons and kind of the celestial movements and then in chapter seven which is called Jing Shen, which I think is probably almost like uh, the halfway point between philosophy and medicine where they're talking about the five zhang and things like that but it's not quite the five zhang. What is it? They include the gallbladder as one of the five zhang, right? The heart is actually absent.
1: I've heard this before that in Korea, they have a very Confucian bend toward the medicine and the heart is not included because the heart is somehow supposed to be within the relationships of human beings.
0: Okay. That probably comes back in my opinion a little bit to the philosophical text where they view the heart as kind of a heart mind – but this idea of the gallbladder being one of the five zhang, this is my opinion of why it is actually both a fu bao and an extraordinary fu bao, is that it came from this category of where it was a uh, five zhang. So we can't just bring it into the fu bao. So we still need to give this idea that it's still a quite an important organ. So we'll make it an extraordinary fu because it's the only out of the zheng fu, that is both a zheng fu and an extraordinary bao, right? Or an extraordinary fu. All the other extraordinary fu's are separate. They, they are not considered zheng fu, only the gallbladder. So that's my theory was that they had this idea that, it, well, it was one of the five zang, And so they needed to m- kind of move it across back into this kind of z- system of 12 zheng fu. And that's, that was their kind of, uh, how would you say compromise, I guess?
1: Uh huh. So. If you have a sense of this, what was their sense of what the gallbladder was about in that time, place, and text? How were they seeing it?
0: I'm not really sure. I guess that they would just view it as, as one of the kind of more important zungs because it's not, not really part of the digestive tract, even though it is, you know? It's kind of like when I think it's in like Su Wen Nine or something like that, where they describe about all the digestive organs from like the stomach, the spleen, the small intestine, large intestine, kind of um, and, and bladder and stuff like that. And they talk about the whole digestive tract. It's not really kind of part of that. So yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure.
1: It's one of those historical curiosities.
0: Definitely, but I mean that that's kind of my theory about how it became one of the uh, one of the extraordinary foo. But coming back to this idea of yin-yang is that in this kind of Taoist text, the Huainanzi, Nanza, yin and yang appear to be kind of like more on a level playing field where you need above to have below. You need to have heaven and to have earth. You, you need this kind of balance, right?
1: That's kind of the way I think of it. In fact, that is the way I think of it, that, that you don't get more of one without less of the other. And it's a continual changing of one into the other. And there's always a dynamic motion involved.
0: I, I agree. I, I, I think that's probably the way that most people look at yin and yang
1: as well. And that's from the Huainanzi.
0: Yeah. But
1: in Dong Zhongshu's
0: text, he has this chapter where he basically says that yang is superior and yin is inferior. Uh-oh. And, yeah, I know. And, and, and um, I believe a lady called Robin Wang wrote a text that basically Dong Zhongshu set up kind of like the patriarchy in China for like almost like the 2,000 years. I was
1: just thinking the same thing with a statement like that.
0: And they actually say, I think, something like, you know, that I think some people blame Confucius for a little bit of that patriarchy, but I think, you know, I might be misquoting here, but I I think that it was more like uh, the idea with Confucius was that you had a amicable reciprocal relationship with, with the husband and the wife, right? That if you weren't a good husband... Then your wife shouldn't support you, and and had right to kind of leave, right? But in Dong Zhongshu's point of view, it's just like, well, no, you know, the the husband or the ruler or the young in the relationship was always superior, and he says something like, you know, even if the yin side is superior, they still can't be above young, you know. So he he has a very very different view of yin and yang as well, and it's it's not spoken much about I think in the West, but it was I think it played a large part, and I think you can maybe sometimes see parts of that come through in the medicine as well so I think it 's just about having that awareness that these ideas existed you know you kind of read it and you think, okay you know is is young more important in this context, or is yin more important in this context as well and then what are the author's maybe biases here as well, so you can kind of understand that as well
1: sure I mean sometimes you look at a person 's theory. And that just tells you a whole lot about who that person happens to be.
0: That period of time, China was coming back into a, I guess, a period of stability as well after, you know, having the spring and autumn and the warring states and, and even, you know, like, uh, the legalist Han Faiser, you know, like he had a very good system for kind of, establishing power, but it wasn't a good system for maintaining power. Because I think there's the, the story of, I, I think, I forget who the guy who started the Han Dynasty was, right? But he apparently was uh, traveling with a whole bunch of prisoners, but some of them escaped. And in the legalist system, you got a punishment no matter what. There was no ifs or buts. So he said to these prisoners, if you guys follow me and fight for me, I will release you. And And so then he actually ended up conquering the Qin dynasty and becoming the Han dynasty. So, you know, you kind of have a look at all these different kind of philosophies. And, and, I, really, and I really think that Chinese philosophy is an important part of the medicine because one of my um, beliefs is that really the medicine is painted on a canvas of philosophy. Min Yin Yang, five phases – all of these are philosophical concepts, right?
1: Well, they they run throughout Chinese philosophy. I mean, if you're looking at geomancy, if you're looking at fortune telling, if you're looking at bazi, you're looking at the motion of the stars. It all comes down to that. Yeah. Right. So,
0: when I was a student, I'm always studying. But when I was a student. I didn't get many answers like, you know, when you come into your class, they just put like, you know, the yin yang kind of relationships, the interdependence, you know, the waxing and waning. Where do these ideas come from? You know, what are the actual quotes? And so this is kind of one of the things that I, that I was working on as well is to come back, find where these original quotes come from and try and understand them. The medicine, I guess, in a way that they did back, you know, in the old days, not just taking the message out of the text, but kind of going back and looking at the original context of the quote as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you got some other examples any or anything in particular where you've gone and you've looked into some of these quotes and the context and been able to pull something out that helped you make sense of something that you might have heard in Chinese medicine school but never quite understood?
0: Hmm... I'm not. I'm not sure about that one. Uh, you put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's my job. Um.
0: Yeah. 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 W- one of the things that I looked at was uh, not so much quotes, but perhaps in uh, Giovanni's book. And once again, you know, I think Giovanni did a lot of good stuff. But in his chapter on the small intestine, he talks about the small intestine having like a mental component, or you know, like an emotional component. He talks about there's two other aspects of it where the small intestine, I think, governs the transformation of matter and, and separates the clear and the turbid, right? And then it has oh, an emotional matter. you know, matter. I
1: remember that one, separates mm. the clear and turbid.
0: Yeah. It has this other, where, where they say it discriminates something like the emotions or something like that. It has this ability to, uh, sorry, discriminating capacity and critical appraisal for the small intestine. That quote is never in any Chinese book. But I, I think the way that he did it was he extrapolated it from the small intestine's ability to separate clear and turbid, but he doesn't state that this is his own creation, right? So I, th- and I think that's a little bit of a, a dangerous idea in Chinese medicine where you don't state that this is my own idea or my own extrapolation and you kind of put it in that this is, uh, in the canons, right?
1: Well, I, th- you know, we were talking earlier in the conversation that, Yes, sometimes we cherry-pick. We have an idea, we grab another idea from somewhere, you know, ideally an old text, and go, look, see, this is that. And you mentioned that the Chinese do it as well, that it's, it's something I think that maybe we do as human beings in a way. We've got an idea, we want to establish some kind of credibility for that idea, we want to have some kind of ground to stand on to say, it's not just my idea, look, Zhang Zhongjing said this, right, or... You know, whoever said it, right? You can pull out a reference from somewhere. So, you know, there is that, you know, and at the same time, because Chinese medicine is so image based I mean, sometimes we're really looking at an image of something. We're looking for a resonance of something. And that actually, that resonance can carry a huge amount of information if we can understand how to unpack that in a current context seems like context is the key to all this stuff.
0: I mean, I agree. I, I, and I think that, that idea of uh, Zhang Xiang, I love that quote and, um, or that, that phrase, right? And I think like Zhang, Zhang Jingyue, he sort of says, like the Zhang, you know, it's the internal part, and the Xiang, that's the external manifestations of the Zhang when you kind of like looking at the lips and the eyes you know it's like it's just, it's just a way of categorizing and understanding that disease in how you treat it and how you look at it in clinic as well you know is it part of the liver or is it part of the spleen you know and it just gives you a starting point on how to treat that you might think okay you know i've got perhaps no real idea on how to treat this eye disease but maybe you know i know that the liver orifice uh is the eyes right i know that the taiyang channel starts up at the top of the eye as well. And, 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 you know, maybe it's a heat disease as well. And, and Tai Yang having the chi of, you know, being cold and water. Maybe I'll, I'll work at the point Ju Yin, which is bladder 67 to try and draw that heat out of the eye via the channel. But at the same time, I might do, you know, uh, liver two because it's the fire point, right? As well. And, and, you know, the orifice is the eye and it's a red hot eye as well. So you kind of, you have these kind of quotes on your physiology that help you. The Develop your understanding based on perhaps your treatment or points as well. And it's it's just a start, you know, it might not be the best treatment, but hopefully you can elicit some form of change for this person in the clinic.
1: Well, I've also heard it said that methods are one thing, but principles are something else. And if you understand the principle of something, you'll figure out the methods If you're given methods without principles, then you're stuck with whatever that method happens to take care of in that particular situation. Because if you don't understand the underlying principle or or mechanism, you're kind of sunk. But if you understand that underlying principle, like you were just talking about, Taiyang channel, it has to do with cold. And so if you need to bring some some cold into a situation, you think about that Taiyang urinary bladder. How are you going to use it? Well, you want to look at your situation. It'll tell you.
0: If I could perhaps rephrase what you were what you were looking at a little bit, is it's not just um, the principle, but it's like when you read a text. You understand what is explicitly being said and what is implicitly not being said as well. You kind of got to read between the lines. And when I talk to my students about like the Shanghan Lun or something like that, they're like, "How do I read it? How do I how do I study it?" It's just like you know, you just got to study at, at the first stage. And um, one of my good friends, a guy called Ivan Savala, he he helped me a lot study the Shanghan Lun at the start, and it was just like you know, well, what does this mean? What does uh, this? part mean. It's just like, you just got to read and accumulate knowledge. And as you accumulate more knowledge, then you actually begin to understand, right? Because it's like, to understand, you know, you have your Guija tongue, right? But then when you read through the text, they'll just say, oh, you have this Guaja formula, but you take this herb out, you take that herb out. What's the flavor? What's the temperature of that herb as well? And what's that telling you about that disease in that context? Is it adding, you know, warm, pungent? Is it taking out cold sour you know and then what's that telling you in terms of that disease context none of that's written in the book but it's implicit because you should have that base level of knowledge from have reading the shanghan lun from reading the shen nong bencao jing as well right you have these kind of base level knowledge you can only know these things by reading more. So and then you go back and you read it and it's like, "Oh, okay, this is what it means here. This is what it means there." So you're constantly reading and rereading to understand the principles like you said as well.
1: It's not so easy, is it?
0: Oh, no. I mean, it's for me now I sort of think that maybe, you know, in 10 years I'll be a good scholar. Maybe 20 years I'll be a great scholar, and in another 30 I might be a good physician. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, you know, I don't uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I that whole idea. I mean, we really kind of worship the masters, so to speak. But I'm of the opinion these days that most of us are not going to be masters, uh, but we can be really good, solid journeymen and journeywomen. I mean, we can be really solid practitioners without necessarily being a capital M master. I don't even know what it goes into to be a master.
0: I just, I just want to be, you know, a good physician. Sometimes I think masters, it's maybe just like being able to see this and saying, look, I've treated this before. This is all all the signs are pointing to this. So, you know, nine out of 10 times, this is going to have a very good success rate. So maybe let's go down this path and see what happens, right? Right.
1: So so here's something that, that has come up for me in clinic recently, which is if I see something and I know how to treat it or I think I know how to treat it, I'm going to go down that rabbit hole because I've already been down that rabbit hole. In fact, I recognize that rabbit hole. I know this situation. But I often don't learn anything new when I do that. I'm actually just repeating something that I've done in the past. I think the really challenging situations are where I'm facing something and I'm, and I'm really not sure of it. It's like when a treatment goes well and I know what to do, I don't really learn anything at this point other than, oh, yeah, I know to do this for that. But I think where the learning really happens is when we don't quite know what to do in a treatment. I think the learning really happens when, like you're talking about, you're reading the Shanghan learning, you're reading the Bun Sao Jing, or you're reading something, and you're going, what the hell are they talking about? Because you because you don't have enough context, you don't have enough information yet to be able to pull the implicit out of the explicit. That that seems to be the place where we really go to school with our medicine.
0: I, I agree. The only other situation that I would add is that uh, when you go down that rabbit hole and all, and all of a sudden, I don't know if you guys have them in, in America, but we have what you call a funnel web spider where they actually live down these little holes. Okay. Well, they're, they're basically spiders that live in, you know, little holes, right? And you think, hey, you know, this treatment should work, but it doesn't. You know, you can't figure out why. And then that's where you're really kind of like, you're scratching your brain. You're thinking, why doesn't this work? It's worked before. What am I missing? What, what can I read to figure this out? You know, what aspect of the medicine do I need to study and go deeper into try and figure out this problem as well? Because I think that's one of the other issues is that I know you're not a big Facebook man, but I tend to to look at it and read it probably a bit too much for my own sanity is that people will go on and say, how do I treat this Western disease or something like that? And, and, you know, oh, the patient has got shingles. What herbs should I give her? Or the patient is worried about cancer. What formula should
1: I put her on? it's just like, well,
0: I don't really think that's the method that that's how we should be treating people as well. that's not
1: Chinese medicine. I, I agree. I mean, I mean, plain and simple, that's not Chinese medicine.
0: I agree a hundred percent, but how do we change these people back, kind of coming back to Chinese medicine? I mean, in those contexts, it's like, and this is why I think that Dr. Huang is, is really, really brilliant because he was just like, well, just treat the constitution of that person as well. Get everything running as well as it should. And then the person, unless heaven inclines them to develop cancer, then they shouldn't develop cancer. They should, everything should be working well. And if, you know, if they unfortunately do develop cancer, that's just kind of heaven's destiny, right? You can't, Cure everyone, but you can try and get people into a good position where they don't.
1: Yes. I, I, treating the constitution, I find, if I'm not sure what else to do, usually that is somewhat obvious and some work can be done there. But again, I think we're looking at situations here where sometimes you do want to treat the constitution. You take care of the Jungchi Chi, the Jungchi' Chi will take care of the Shiachi but other times, it's more like you've got to go at what the problem is. Sometimes you'll even sacrifice the constitution a bit in service of getting the intruder out of the uh, situation.
0: I mean, that's a really interesting idea because earlier in the year, I had the wonderful privilege of doing some study with Mazin al Kafaji. He came to our national conference that was down in Melbourne and he did a two-day workshop on dermatological problems. And his basic principle is, you know, These people have often severe latent heat and he just needs to go in there. You know, you need to put out that fire, right, before you can supplement anything, right? It's like, you know, are are you going to try and extend the deck of your house while the lower floor is still burning? (laughs) (laughs) Put the fire out, (laughs) right? Yeah, you're going to put the fire out before you try and ex- extend your back patio, right? And, and that's, that's, that's kind of his, his view, right? You know, these people have long standing diseases, so you need to treat that first, put that under control, and then afterwards you can build them. He's a really, really interesting and great doctor, and, and, and very, uh, I really, really enjoyed his classes as well.
1: Have you got any sort of metrics or thoughts or just ways that you have for yourself in clinic? Of being able to discern that for yourself. Oh, here's a situation, I've got a fire to put out. Oh, here's a situation, actually taking care of the Constitution should handle that. How do you make those decisions when you're seeing patients?
0: When we look at, I guess, the uh, diseases in Shanghai, right? I think that perhaps the diseases that they wrote and what we see now. When Zhang Zhongjing was writing, I think Taiyang disease would have been more severe than what we see in clinic. Yangming more often more disease. Xiao Yin especially more severe than what we see now, right? So then I thought, well, why do these formulas work in our modern clinic? And so I came up with basically, you know, back then they had acute more severe diseases, and now we have chronic less severe diseases in most cases.
1: You know, not not all. I would say the severe diseases are out there. They just don't walk in our office.
0: Yeah. So most people that we see have chronic, but not as severe as what you would have seen in the Shangan I mean, in Xiao Yin disease, they might have died in a couple of days, you know, and when someone comes in that we might diagnose with, with like a Shao Yin disease, they're probably not going to die in a few days, right? We're in a bit of a different kind of period of medicine where we still have these herbs, but they're more chronic diseases. So. How do we find that balance? I'm not sure. Maybe ask me in in twenty years and I'll have a better answer for you.
1: yeah, well, I, I think if you had been asking me that same question, I may not be able to give you a very direct answer either because I mean it really depends on the situation,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: at any rate, I want to uh I want to pivot here for just a moment because you're doing a book on acupuncture, uh yeah, acupuncture points. And, and I would like to be able to talk about that a little bit because there's already been plenty of books done on acupuncture points. Why do another one? What have, what have you got here? It's something I suspect really has your attention with this.
0: I'm I'm a little bit strange, if you hadn't figured that all out already. Is that When you do Chinese
1: uh, medicine, of course you're strange.
0: I kind of like to know a lot about everything. I was thinking about... This conversation that we might have and, and how I might frame it. And when I was younger, when I was really into music and played bands and things like that, I always like to look up, you know, an artist, find out all about their albums, look up the members, find out what kind of uh, bands were they influenced by as well, you know? So I could go back and listen to those bands as well, you know? And I was really into kind of progressive rock. So I would go back, so, you know, and I was my favourite band was a band called Dream Theater. And these guys, they grew up listening to like Yes!, Genesis, Rush. So I used to go back and and I I looked up all that sort of stuff, right? And so when I came into Chinese medicine, I started seeing these authors and I was kind of like, okay, who is this guy influenced by? Who is that guy influenced by? What did they write about? What was their style? And I would just go through and I would just read about the authors, what books they read. And then I would go in and I would read the contents of the books as well. So I could kind of understand, okay, this author is talking about this, 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 this author is talking about this, 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 and get ideas about What authors would talk about. I wouldn't necessarily read the book unless I found something really interesting, but I kind of got this idea of a landscape in my head about Chinese literature. And so I came across this book called the Jing Shui Jie or as I've translated it, explanations of channels and points. And it was a, it was a really, really interesting book because the first thing that I noticed was that it numbered the points. This book was written in I guess about 1694 as well.
1: So it's early Qing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but it, you know, it numbers the points. So like I think in the same
1: way that we number them.
0: Nearly identical. I've found a few discrepancies, but everything has been nearly identical to what I've noticed as well. They use the old system with the bladder channel, where they the bladder channel, they kind of come up and they they go back up to an earlier number system on the outer bladder channel line, as well. But then, other than that, they mostly mostly do it right. But even in translating this book, I actually kind of um, found out that the numbering system is is slightly implicit in the point names, right? And I'll tell you why. Because do you know what the fifth bladder point is called?
1: Uh, bladder five. No. It's,
0: it's it's called something called like the fifth space. <laughs> okay. Right? So, so it's kind of like, oh, you translate this and it's like the fifth space, I guess. So I guess he must've thought, okay, actually the numbering points here are a little bit implicit. So, you know, he, he started, he calls it, you know, like Lung 1 and then, you know, uh Zhong Fu, Lung 2, Tian Fu and so forth, you know, and and then kind of he, he numbers all the points. So when I kind of grew up, um well, when I, when I was studying, we were taught that maybe the numbers were more of like a Western invention.
1: Or something yeah, like that, that. that was that was my sense of it. In fact, I found because we didn't really learn the names, later I started looking at the names and found that to be super helpful because sometimes the name would tell you what the point did. Right. So like rent eleven means nothing to me. But rent eleven is when you know its name is construct the interior. Oh man, we can use that for digestion.
0: Yeah. Do you know? And I think I think Ren Nine is called Shui Fen. Shui Fen. Wa- that's right. Water yeah, Division, so it, right? It's
1: great for wa- water metabolism issues. Yeah. 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 Right. Exactly. So super helpful knowing the names of these things.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, and so this book is interesting because it's actually the only received book that I know of that talks about the the book that talks about the names and the locations of the point and attempts to explain them. Okay. There was an earlier work by uh, Yang Shangshan, who was the author of the Taisu. And these were works that were discovered in Japan in like 1830 or something like that. And they actually found one scroll of his that he commentated on what they called the Ming Tang Jing or the classic of the Bride Hall. And that's one of the three books that made up the systematic classic of acupuncture, which, um, Charles Chase and, uh, Yang Shouzhong translated as well. And so this book appears to be a commentary on volume six and seven of the Zhenzhu Da Cheng or the great compendium of acupuncture, which then in itself appears to be mostly from the Brighthawk classic. Okay. And so this is a text that was written back in the Han dynasty. And he's written, written basically a commentary on you know why these points treat the diseases that they do. It's just brilliant because he looks at it. You know, from a physiology point of view as well. He says, "Okay, maybe this is this type of cough that this will treat as well." It's really interesting, and he and he brings in five phase uh, developments as well. So, for example, when he talks about lung five, he talks about it being the water point, and he says, "Well, this treats sorrow," and he says, "This is," and he says, "The water point treats uh, sorrow because the lung has dryness."
1: And so by bringing water into the dryness, mm. you're treating the sorrow.
0: Yeah, that's, that's his kind of physiological idea there as well.
1: I was looking through – you sent me a uh, a couple of pages of, of the book. And one of the things I found super interesting about it is that – well, the lung, for instance, uh, you start with uh, Taiyuan, right? Lung 9, the great abyss. And, you know, you've got where it's located. You've got some things that it does. But what's, what's interesting is you've got some lines in here. There's, like, heart diseases of the lung. There's spleen diseases of the lung. There's liver diseases of the lung. And when I think about uh, in the Nanjing where they talk about the different kinds of evils, right? There's the upright evil. There's the, you know, like uh, – Vacuous evil. Yeah, the vacuous evil. I, I forget Excessive all the names. Excessive evil. Right. Yep. But basically there's different evils – depending on where they are in relation through the five phases. And it looks to me like some of that idea is incorporated here in this work.
0: Absolutely. And when I looked at this, I, I, was, I wasn't really sure how to approach it. And it was actually Leo Locke who helped me say, this is what the model is. And I said, okay, you know, if Leo Locke says it, then it's kind of like, okay, I'm not going to debate that with him. Um, 99% sure it's right. And so this, I was kind of like, uh how do I get a textual confirmation though? Okay, so first off, in the great compendium of acupuncture, uh, Yang Jijou, he talks about it in his first volume about the five evils as well. Okay? And then there's another text by Wang Ji in about 1517 or something like that. And it's called um, Questions and Answers About Acupuncture and Moxibustion. And it's kind of like more of a modern Nanjing, right? And even then, he once again mentions... Uh, the chapter 49 and, f- and 50 on from the Nanjing on the five evils as well. So from that point of view, I think that you can see this idea of five evils was firmly established as a basis for acupuncture as well, and its use in acupuncture. So I, I agree, and I and I think once again it's kind of like, you know, it's just this basic idea of why should this point treat these other diseases? If it's a lung point, why should it treat liver? Why should it treat heart? Well, you know, it's all part of the five phase system, right? If the lung is in disharmony, it's not. You know, it, rarely will that lung only be in disharmony. It will have an influence on the other phases.
1: Of course, I mean, rarely is the lung ill by itself. I mean, this this kind of gets back to what we were talking about a little earlier, where other types of medicine practitioners will grab Chinese herbs and go, "Oh, you can use this for that." Well, because they're looking. At just one situation, maybe the organ itself is diseased or has a problem, but they're not looking at how things actually work through the influence of the different phases and how things are connected to each other.
0: Well, I mean, the question would be, well, did they even take the pulse? You know, <laughs> likely likely not.
1: Well, if they're not Chinese medicine practitioners, of course they didn't take the pulse. No,
0: no, no. Yeah, Exactly, right? Another really interesting aspect of uh, this book, because I'm currently editing the Bladder Channel, right? And the Bladder Channel, it's about 112 pages. So it's, it's, it's a big bopper. It talks in about, I think, uh, Bladder 13, right? The long back transport. Point. It has a really, really interesting commentary on it, right? Every now and again, the guy, the author, Yule Hanjen, he'll he'll just go into this big kind of rant in, in in a point thing. And I mean it's cool. It's not much fun to translate, but it's seriously cool when you when you understand the meaning, right? <laughs> so he starts talking about the lung transport points, right? And he says, you know, all the back transport points, they, they all have like a connector to the Zung viscera. And that's what he, the word he uses is connector, which is the shi in Guan shi right? And oh, so he okay. says, so he says this, this connector, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, it, it doesn't actually access the Zung, but it, it connects to the Zung itself. And then later he says these connectors, they're all in this kind of the, the, the fatty membranous tissue in the paravertebral sinews. And I think he says that in like bladder 31 or something like that. And what I think he's basically talking about is, is talking about the, basically the nerves coming from the, the spine. He's saying that, that all these zung have connectors and this is where could, they are. You could
1: make a case for this, couldn't you?
0: Yeah. Well, he's saying it's not the actual zung itself, but they're just a connector that goes to that organ as well. So, I mean, I think that's a really, Interesting idea early on in in the medicine and I'm not sure kind of where how nerves were developed on the kind of the biomedical side But that that's a really interesting idea to kind of say this. This is just the connected to that to that Mm zung
1: Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine Even as they were feeling more positive about acupuncture They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals and microbial content at the manufacturer and by sgs laboratory a swiss certification and inspection company for over 20 years blue poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority resulting in exceptionally effective Got your attention to the degree that you were willing to put all this work into translating it.
0: When I was originally working on Shuling um, Tai's Shanghan Leifang, or the you know the categorized formulas of the Shanghan Lun, right? And did you translate that? I've done a little bit of it. I've done parts of it, but I haven't finished it.
1: Uh huh. Well, please please put some uh, excerpts up in the Lantern for us because that's an incredible book.
0: Like I said, I need to go back and 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 fix some of it up. But that's that's a good idea. I'll have to I'll have to look into that. But but when I was doing that, I felt that I didn't understand the Han Lun good enough to translate it. Uh, so I I backed off it. I sort of thought about what what did I want to translate, and and also what would be beneficial to the field as well.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And and that's kind of where it, when I when I came across this book, you know, and it was just like there's not there's not. There's just nothing else like it that I've ever seen, and there's nothing else that really I guess connects us to a past book that we can use clinically as well, and also that describes the the points with the five phases as well i mean i'm not I'm not really a big fan of how people talk about five element acupuncture and stuff like that kind of in in the modern terms as well like I don't see connections to the classics or anything like that often when they talk about it so this book kind of comes in and says bam you know this is this is how it is and it's and it's from a Chinese author and I think when you read it you really see how this guy's knowledge comes through I mean he has he has amazing knowledge of the classics he has a major amazing knowledge of the diseases he's able to kind of correlate you know, diseases as well. Not only that, I mean, in the past, all of the, all these diseases would have just been grouped up, right? Has one big kind of fat list. And it's just like, well, how do you remember that? Well, then he comes through and he, and, and for the, uh, yin points, he groups them by organ for the yin points and but for the young points who often group them by what he calls originally in the articles. I have it translated as root disease, but we've changed it to principal disease. Because principle, we're kind of looking at it has more about the principal channel that it runs along as well. And that's often how he'll kind of group that with the disease. But he also might say that this channel treats maybe eye diseases uh, on the young side, treats eye diseases or treats the fu bow as well. You know, if it's a stomach or large intestine problem as well. So he takes these big lists of diseases that were originally in these books and he breaks it down for you. And it's just like, okay, you know, I might not. Uh, remember exactly what the disease is, but maybe, you know, I know Lung 5 treats some heart diseases, so maybe, you know, I'm going to use a water point to treat if there's lung and heart problems there as well. And then maybe I'll go back and and read it more as well. But also as well, I think that there's a lot of interesting diseases in there as well. And maybe, you know, people might read it and, and they might think, okay, you know, I've actually seen something like in this clinic and I didn't know what to do, but then, I might be able to use this point for it as well and just see if it works, you know. And I think when I'm in clinic and when I'm thinking about herbs, I, I tend to try and think of, you know, like a line in the Shanghan Lun or the Jingwei or, or a formula, you know, and try and think about that reference. But in acupuncture, I don't really have that. I don't really have a connection to a text. So I would like people to kind of maybe be able to think about, okay, it, in the Jing Shui Jie, it says this, so let's do that, you know, in clinic.
1: Well, it sounds a little bit to me as well, again, circling back to some things we talked about earlier in this conversation, that there's explicit and implicit, and especially with herbs, you get your herbal knowledge to a certain level, you get your experience to a certain level, you can look at an herbal formula, you know the diagnosis. You can look at an herbal formula, you know the pathomechanism, because it it basically tells you. And it sounds like with this book here, because of the way the author has pulled in five-phase correspondences, looked at how diseases can transmit from one organ to another, that we've got something similar here, that there might be an issue with the heart, and there's actually a certain kind of physiological connection or a pathomechanism that's going on, and He's cluing you into what that is. So you can not just take the point and treat it, but you can see if maybe that dynamic is actually unfolding in your patient.
0: I think the saddest thing about this is that the, uh, the author had another maybe like seven or eight books, but they're all lost. We don't have any more of his works, which is such a great shame.
1: It's a bummer when they don't back it up on the hard drive, I'm telling you.
0: Oh, man, you know, hadn't he heard of Google Drive? Anyway. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, it's amazing how it, much has been lost. It has to be rediscovered.
0: Well, he wrote like a commentary. I assume it's a commentary on the Suwen and the Ling Shu. He also wrote a book about the, uh, like has a rough translation, miraculous ancient acupuncture prescriptions as well. And so this is another thing that kind of like reading this, I thought about. When we were at school, right, when you were in clinic, did you come up with your own herbal formulas or did you tend to follow a herbal, a herbal formula We and modify?
1: We were, yeah, we were encouraged to pick a formula and then do a modification.
0: Okay. So why in acupuncture do we not follow any of the prescriptions? I don't know. You know, because I'll tell you, t- Manual of Acupuncture is actually the best source for point combinations I've read across English and Chinese. I've not seen a better book that lists point combinations than that. And it's in English, but no but no one accesses it as well. You know, I think we almost need a reformation in how we treat acupuncture. We should be learning these classical prescriptions and trying to apply them in clinic, I
1: think. Much in the same way that we learn classical Chinese medicine verbal prescriptions, understand the dynamic that it's talking about, and then modify based on what we're seeing in clinic.
0: Why don't we try and bring back these prescriptions and try and use them in clinic and see, you know, what works, what doesn't, you know, how to maybe modify it up from there? Because we really, we have such a great list of them in uh, Manual of Acupuncture, but we're not utilizing it. And I think it's such a, such a great shame. That is one of the best uh, books that I've ever read, both in English and Chinese, and anyway, I, you know, I hope my book will be a good supplement to that as well.
1: Does your book have point combinations similar to uh, in the manual? No, no. no.
0: I, I assume that that was written in his other book, unfortunately, um, that, that was lost. And, you know, it's, it, yeah, such a shame. I hope one day someone will find them in an archive or something like that and then – we might have access to them, but i can I can only hope you know I think it's a it's a really interesting field and I hope and I think it's going to develop soon and I think uh like uh, one of my good friends Ivan Savala, he's talking about it he's beginning to teach a program out uh, of school in Chicago talking a little bit about you know using the systematic classic and some point combinations from there as well he's uh he, he's a really good both linguist and and uh, scholar that's helped me and physician as well.
1: I may have to go talk to him. He sounds like an interesting cat.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's definitely worth your while. He's, uh, he's 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 written quite quite a few posts as well, and he's um he's very astute. One thing with uh, translating as well is that, to me, uh, you've got to have a good team around you as well, I think. For me, I have a guy called uh, Johann Hausen as well. He's a German-born guy living in New Zealand, But he spent like eight years in like a Wudang monastery in China as well. Oh, my goodness. So he's a a really interesting chap. We talked and and we connected a lot. We have a lot of same principles about trying to, you know, bring this information out to people and making it affordable as well so that people can access these texts as well. So he's my first person that, you know, I translate something and I send it to him.
1: Yeah, it's so helpful having people look over our work that way.
0: Uh, well, he, he's not a native reader, so he'll still go through and he'll, say, he'll sort of say, yes, mm, not sure, yes, 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 mm, this is my reading. And then after that, we send it to another guy called um, Alan Saw as well. And he has been teaching the history for Phil Settles in his program as well. And uh, he, he's a young guy as well. I think he's younger than me and it, just early 30s. He is an incredible, incredible scholar. He often tears my work to shreds, <laughs> but
1: it makes it it makes it better, you know. It it does make it better. Yeah, it's it, it's hard. This is hard work to do. This is this is a terrible question to ask a translator or an author. Any idea when we might be seeing the book?
0: Look, it, it, the aim is end of October
1: of this year. Uh, yeah, yeah. So two thousand
0: nineteen. Yeah. So look, my original goal was to publish the whole book in one book, which would have been close to maybe seven or 800 pages. And I thought, you know, look, that just wasn't feasible. So we split it in half. So the first book will be the first seven channels. So the lung, large intestine, stomach, spleen, uh, heart, small intestine, and bladder. And you're probably looking at about 350 pages there. So it's still a sizable text.
1: Yes, it is. You know.
0: Right now, we're just editing the bladder channel, which is the last thing that we have to do as well.
1: If people want to get some information about this, have you got a website where they could go or uh, some way of being in touch?
0: Currently, I don't have a lot of information about this on, on, on the website, but I do have a blog. It's called it's, uh, blblog.remedylane.com.au, like so as in remedy and lane right now i've just I just post up a little bit of stuff about herbs and formulas, but i 'm going to be posting some more stuff about points as we get a little bit closer to the release date to try and you know hype it up a little bit as well but uh one of my projects that i've started doing is that um, I think i 'm going to pick one herb and maybe you know for the for every week once a week i 'm going to post up a small translation of that herb from one of the Benzao's. So this week I did um Jurmu and it was from the ben Sao Bei Yao and it just translates this author's opinion of it. And next week I'm gonna pick a different Bensao. And the basic idea then is that to try and expose non-Chinese readers to Maybe some different Id- how different Chinese authors approach the medicine as well because they have different opinions themselves. Sometimes they're a little bit more uh, you know functional. Sometimes they're a little bit more five phase. Sometimes you know they have their own opinions. So I think uh, and, and for me it's about just better understanding the herb as well. They're just they're not they're not you know perfect translations. They're just a little bit rough, but it's just about putting it out there as well.
1: Great. Well, I'll be sure to put links to that up on the show notes page.
0: Oh, thank you. And if people do want to read about the, uh, if they have access to the Journal of Chinese Medicine, you can access one article in there. And that was, I think, in the May issue or the June issue that's just been released. And then there's another article coming out in the Lantern as well, which I believe should be released next month. So there are two articles that are in journals if you guys want to read a little bit more on it, but we should be posting some samples soon.
1: Sounds great. Well, Thank you for your inquiry and, and thanks for the work. It's so wonderful to be able to have access in English to this old Chinese stuff.
0: No worries, Michael. Thank you for having me on, and I hope that I haven't uh, disrupted your dinner plans too much. You know, like I said, I really hope that it should be out. You know, by the end of the year at the latest, and, and hopefully October at the end of that as well. Just uh, sometimes. When you're working on a project, things take a little bit longer, and that's been the whole whole case with this, but we're making good progress. And I I really think that that if you guys have any interest in, in delving a little bit deeper into acupuncture, this will be a text that you will really enjoy.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much. No problems. Have a lovely night. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight,